Precious Father, Lord, um, what a privilege it is to be alive, uh, especially in these last days. And what a wonderful revelation that everything around that's created is created to communicate your love and assurance to us that you care about us that you have a better plan that redemption is already in progress as we see in spring and the resurrection of the plants every year that these are all pictures of the fact that you have a a redemption in place despite the damage that we have caused and as we look into today into the subject of of your creation especially looking at the seed and the physical seed and how the laws that make it up uh, are so important to success in the physical realm of creating food or producing food help us also to realize that these are primarily as lessons to teach us how we need our spiritual food from you that you are the bread of life we pray that jesus will be here through the holy spirit today to help guide our minds and help me to be clear in what I present, not confused, but, but to speak your word and to give your word the place it needs. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I will try to have a question and answer period. Now, I'm not, you know, a lot of the speakers here are highly qualified. I'm not. I'm just a preacher, really. That's, I'm an itinerant preacher. That's what I call myself. God called me into this message, and, and I live to, to share Christ. Uh, but the Lord led me into agriculture without my really realizing it and showed me its importance, um, you know, in several ways. And not only agriculture, but in, in physical recreation, physical redemption. You know, the things that God has left in our lives. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, right? Cur in other words, God is saying is, I've made, I've made some difficulty for your benefit. That's what it means. So, because you now need a certain amount of difficulty to discover me because you've put, pushed me further away. I want to come closer to you. So to avoid you, me drifting further from you, I've put some things in the way to make it easier for you to stay close to me. And that's what we're facing in a fallen world. And that's why gardening is not always the favorite thing of young people to do uh, because many young people haven't figured out yet that ease is often their enemy. Now, they do figure it out in time. Most of us, when we become parents, we figure that out, right? Uh, but, but, you know, that, that toil is actually our friend in the way that God designed it when properly understood. So keep that in mind when we talk about the whole subject of heirloom seeds, because one of the things you're going to hear, even from presenters here, are, well, heirloom seeds are good, but they're awfully difficult to, to do. They're really difficult. And one thing, um, we'll talk about what even an heirloom is, but an heirloom is the way that farming happened to heirloom or, or open pollinated would be probably a more scientific term to natural seed production is how the world survived up until the 1900s. That was about all they knew. And you're here, right? You, you exist, you can pinch yourself and you're here. You know why you're here? Because they didn't go extinct. In other words, it can't be that difficult if they s succeeded to grow natural seed methods for thousands of years and here we all are because of that and now we're saying oh but you can't do it it doesn't make sense um, and what i've come to the conclusion of is that what we mean by it's very difficult is it's not convenient you see our vocabulary has changed we are creatures in, in this production culture in this culture of consumerism that bob talked about the first night how many of you heard that message 
Bob, and, and about the consumer society. And it's not our fault. We've been sucked into it. We've been born into it. But in the consumer society, righteousness is determined as ease, as righteousness in, in the world's view is, is mechanization. It's um, getting rid of toil, you know. And that's the world's view of what's right and what's good. Uh, and what we're going to discover through God's plan is that that's not actually so, that, that what's easiest is not always what's best, and it's not a way of determining what's right at all in God's view. Now, Jesus said, um, straight is the gate and narrow the way that leads to eternal life, and few there be that find it. And what about the other road? It's what? Broad and what else? easy. You know, there's a great quote on that I just found in the Spirit of Prophecy. I don't have the reference offhand, but I can tell you what it said. And it said, do not represent the way of Christ as difficult. The meaning of straight and narrow means it's selective. It does not allow sin to be carried through the passage. It's too narrow for sin, but it's not too narrow for us. It lets us through, but it doesn't let us through with our sin. And that's why it's straight and narrow and she said, actually, the way of the transgressor is hard. And that's a scripture quote. The way of the transgressor is hard. So at the beginning, it seems difficult because it restricts something. Uh, but we can go on through without any problem if we let those things go, if we're willing to let them go, right? And so uh, that's the spiritual lesson. That's also true in agriculture. There are ways to do things that are really easy. You can go to the store, buy your miracle Grow, you know, uh, get your, your plant from the store, and uh, you can buy all this expensive equipment to grow your one or two tomatoes or whatever, you know, in your room. And, and it's, it's fun, it's a hobby, but it's not really practical. And it's also very expensive and it seems easy, but in the long run, it doesn't really do very well. In fact, if you, if you only use miracle Grow on your soil, you end up killing a lot of the natural mechanisms that God has in the soil for, for sustainability, for long-term. That's a, a common phrase today, sustainability. And it has to do with um, the idea of something being able to be perpetual. It's not a broken system, right? And everybody is looking for sustainability, but the only real sustainability is in the kingdom of God, right? And in his methods and in his laws. Isn't that correct? Sustainability, true sustainability is only in God's ways. So anyway, let me move on now to the, the PowerPoint. And uh, we'll start with our devotion. As I was saying, we're going to start with the spiritual lesson of the seed. So one of the, the name of the PowerPoint is Whose Seed is in Itself. And a, a testimony that I would like you to remember is Six Testimonies 140. Just write that down. Six Testimonies 140, paragraph one. And it talks about the fact that obedience to all that God has said is the only method of true success. Okay? And that, I'm premising that behind uh, uh, this presentation. But God said of the herb of the field and of the plants that he created, that the seed was in itself. In other words, it's in the plant. The ability of the plant to reproduce is, is fixed in there by God to produce itself, right? There's a spiritual law there. Uh, how many of you have ever read any of the writings of Jones and Wagner? Uh, great messages from the 1890s that the Sister White says, the Lord sent these messengers. Now, we know they went astray, but she says, in the time when they were speaking for God, those messages are still from the Lord today. They're still to be read and they're still to be studied. But Wagner wrote this incredible 
uh, book on the gospel in creation. And he goes through the days of creation. And I, I invite you to look that up in the Ellen White collections that you can get on your phone app or whatever, or in your library if you can find them. And uh, the gospel in creation is beautiful. It just shows the love of God illustrated all through his creation. But whose seed is in itself, there's a spiritual law here, but we're going to discover what that is. Uh, so let's read this in Genesis 1:11, And I'm going to have to move fast. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. So when the word of God said it, it was so. Isn't that correct? That's why the, the word of God has the power to create, only the only power to create. No demon, no human has that power. We can only procreate, which is a cooperation with creation, but we cannot create. We, are, we say we create, but we really procreate. We, we cooperate with creation that only God has, okay? And that is even in, in the reproduction of children, it's not really something we're creating. It's something that's already been in there and contained in Eve that God put there from the very beginning, right? Uh, all that information began with Eve and what God put in there. So, and Adam, of course, as well. Genesis 2.1 um, says something interesting. After God creates this beautiful system, and we see it in a microscope view in the seed, because the plant and the seed, it's all complete in itself. Genesis 2.1 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. That's King James Version, which is probably my favorite translation, and one of the most you know, accurate, I think, translations. Uh, but I do occasionally look at other translations when, when I see certain words. And I actually looked at the Hebrew here, and kala is the word used for finished. But if you look it up, it also means complete. And complete means more than finished, doesn't it? Now, I can be finished uh, a task, but it doesn't mean the task is complete, right? I may not finish it properly. But complete, what does it communicate? that it's been done completely, it's been, it's been, well, I'm struggling for words here. Done right, that's a good American English, thank you. Or in, in, in British English, which I learned was done correctly. <laughs> but done right, I like that, it's simple and straightforward. All right, and Genesis 2.1 in, in the uh, BBE, whatever that is, uh, and the heaven and the earth and all things in them were complete. Now this carries a little fuller meaning than just finished. And I want you to think about that. Its seed was in itself, and the creation was complete. Complete gives you the sense that nothing can really be added to it. It was all sufficient, and I think that's the real meaning that we're getting to here. I'm not saying that that's what the Hebrew means, because Hebrew is just like English, and Greek is just like English. It's, it's the writer who gives it its meaning, and the writer, who is God, is giving the meaning here, okay? Hebrew, English, Greek, they're all the same. They're languages and they're imperfect. But the t context is shown in the Sabbath. So right after that, we have the giving of the Sabbath. And we're mostly Seventh-day Adventists. If you're not, you're welcome. Uh, you know, there might be other Christians here. But, but as Seventh-day Adventists, we really gravitate towards the Sabbath message. But I don't think we always understand why. And you're probably thinking, what does this have to do with heirloom seeds? Hold on, it's coming. <laughs> the Sabbath is added as a testimony that God's work is complete. They said God had done his work and he rested because it was complete. And when we keep the Sabbath, what we're saying is we believe, whether we know it or not, what it means to say is that we believe that God and his work is all complete. 
The creature cannot add anything to it. It's enough. His work is enough. Okay? And it wasn't like God said, well, I'm taking a break and I'll, I'll finish it later. No, it's complete. And we believe in God's sufficiency. Now, Adam and Eve had something to do with creation, didn't they? And this is where the, the opportunity of Satan is taken at, at this juncture. Adam and Eve were to develop it, but only by cooperation with the laws of God. I guess I should put this on play. Hold on a second here. This is not very efficient. First page. Yeah, sorry. This will be better for you. They were to develop it, but only by cooperation with the laws of God, unfolding from creation that which God had placed within it of his own design. So we're realizing we're working as gardeners with the seed and with the plant. We need to be looking for the laws of God with which to cooperate and not override them. Now, modern agriculture consistently overrides the laws of God. In the short span, it seems to work. But in the long space, as many who are not Christians today are starting to realize, it's not what they call sustainable. Why? Because soil scientists are looking at the soil, and what's happening to the soil in modern agriculture is it's being wasted. They're literally having to move their plots and farm different areas and there is massive tracts of land on the earth that have been rendered unproductive by modern farming. And they don't care because it's not going to affect them probably in their lifetime. You know? But it will affect our children and our children's children. And of course, those who worship nature and worship the earth are very concerned about it. We don't worship nature and we don't worship the earth, but we do respect the laws that God has placed in it. That's the difference. And God does say, I will destroy those that destroy the earth, you know? So at the same time, while we don't have the same worldview as many of the New Age or, or the hippie culture, we can relate to some of their concerns of the detriment of modern agriculture because it's very selfish and short-sighted. And this does relate to the seed. Okay, um, I'll tell you a story. I attend a huge uh, heirloom exposition, heirloom seed exposition every year. And we're dealing here with natural seed production when I say heirloom. And I'll get into the details of what that means soon. But uh, I was standing at a table as a photographer for the expo, and I was photographing different things. And we had this, you ought to go there sometime. If you're ever in Santa Rosa in September, uh, it's an Adventist young man that started a business in natural seeds. And he, he does this huge heirloom exposition every year. And there's literally, I don't know, thousands and thousands of varieties of everything you can think of. Uh, eggplant, how many people know what eggplant or aubergine if you're from Europe where I'm from or um, different names for it. But eggplant, you know, you wouldn't believe the variations of color and shape and size and beauty in just eggplants, you know. And so we had this table laid out with all these beautiful eggplants. And, uh, and most, of our, most of our people that come to the expo to support it are not Christians. They're usually from New Age or, or hippie culture or just rationalistic secular culture, especially in California. It's very big there. And so they come there and they are just like, it's like a big camp meeting for them. It's like a big spiritual retreat, you know, because they really worship these things. And he came up to me and he said, he looked at those eggplants and he said, it's our ancestors. It's our ancestors. Well, what he meant was is that it's a remnant of what our ancestors have done. And in a sense, yeah, because they relate 
in a Buddhist sense, you know, they relate that we are all part of the cosmos, and so really we're the same as it, and it's the same as us, and we're all, God is everything. It's pantheism, very definitely pantheism, Buddhism, the hippie culture, and New Age. It's all wrapped up in end-time pantheism, which is the great deception of the end of time. But anyway, he's saying it's our ancestors, and I couldn't help myself. I do have a big mouth, and I try to keep it quiet most of the time, but this time I couldn't help myself, and I said, I said, no. I said, that's God's work. And he says, what do you mean? It's our ancestors. I said, no. I said, what you're seeing in that expression is all in the eggplant from the beginning. I said, we're not making anything new. Your ancestors did not invent those eggplant. I said, the the beauty that they manifest and express is all contained in the original eggplant that God designed. I said, that's God's work. No, that's our ancestors. And I could tell this wasn't going anywhere. Um, And, you know, but I felt like I had to say, I had to defend God in that case, because really, aren't we just the stewards? We're the cooperators. And yes, God has given us dignity. He's given us a a wonderful creative part in, in being stewards of his creation. But the credit, who does it go to? Can you, can you really make a seed germinate? In fact, the seed can't even really make itself germinate. I'll show you a quote later on where it says that without the power of God, even the life in the seed can do nothing. There's a life in the seed, but without the power of God. Lesson in the gospel right there, okay? So, so I'm trying to get across to this pantheist, a modern pantheist, the idea that really what we're looking at in creation is evidence not to credit us, but that there is someone greater than us that loves us enough to give us a part in this beauty that he is. You know, he wants, us, he wants us to be the ones who get the joy of unwrapping those presents and seeing these new expressions, you know? That's amazing, isn't it? It's like, you know, a parent with a presence, you know, and, and the child wants to unwrap them. That's what God has done for us in nature. It's full of presents. If you've gardened, you'll know that's true, right? And so genetic expressions are not new creations. Now, this totally debunks... Um, evolutionary theory, by the way, because evolutionary theory is that, is that through a series of accidents or through some mystical process within the, the creature itself or the created thing itself, through some mystical process, new things are being made and being added to and things are increasing and adding and getting better. Isn't that the theory of evolution? But actually what's happening in new expressions is simply unpacking what is in the seed in itself, what was there. No, no new expressions are the result, as far as I understand it, of new genetic information. What they are is the, the turning on and off of genes. I know Brother Vyth gets into this because he was uh, into evolution at one time and he talks about how, you know, even the thorn is, is, is uh, an adapted part of the original plant, like a leaf cuticle or a leaf or... Uh, we have a lot of things like that that because of the fall have become negatives that were actually positives, right? They were initially positives. And so God allowed the mark of Satan to be shown in nature to remind man of the degradation that sin causes and that of what lack of cooperation with God's laws causes. It makes an ugly picture, but yet the roses are still on there to remind us that there is a salvation. There is something which will overcome it, Right? So the mutation, you know, the idea in evolution is that mutation is the agent of design. And that's actually false. When they look at mutations, they don't really result in evolution. They usually result in degradation. 
What actually happens with new expressions is simply God, with his beautiful game of having all this stuff wrapped up inside and turning things turn on and off and more, there's more, there's more. It's like the word of God, there's always more. And it's just saying God is amazing. That's what it's saying. You know, God is thoughtful. God is a lover of beauty. God is a creator of beauty. And he also likes to delight his children with variety. And he loves variety in us. Okay? We have different skin colors here. That's part of the same expression. We are all, the Bible says we are all of one blood. We all come from one parent, our parents, and we're really all the same, but God likes variety. So he gives all these different expressions of what he calls humanity. And we should appreciate one another as brothers and sisters because we're all from the one blood, right? And so racism is a terrible distortion of that really evolves out of, it comes out of evolution in a sense when you look at the racist uh, thing that happened in, in the 1800s, uh, you know, ideas that some were inferior and others were more advanced than, you know, that's all wrong because the original that God created, that's all we are results of, the original, okay? The law of God, that seed is in itself. The plant is preloaded with abundant, sufficient information to provide many expressions in itself. This will relate to the heirloom and the open pollinated thing and, and why it's important to keep them alive. Now, I'm not against hybrids, by the way. Many of you might not even know the difference between a hybrid and an heirloom or an open pollinated. And don't become concerned that, well, am I growing hybrids? Is that wrong? I don't think hybrids are wrong, but I will explain to you why it's very important to preserve the naturally uh, rendered seeds, the seeds that are not hybrids, why they're so important, even for the health of hybrids. Um, we'll get into GMO, and that's a whole different subject than hybrids. Don't confuse the two. Um, if I have time, how am I doing? All right, I think we'll make it. Um, so God has invested in his creation plan something complete, not something for man to improve upon by adding his work, but which man was to aid expression of by cooperation with the laws of the creator. The Sabbath actually testifies that man cannot add to God's work, but rather cooperate with it to experience God's wonders. Okay, that's really the Sabbath and the gospel are very closely linked. Now think of this in terms of righteousness by faith, right? And the real righteousness by faith message we had come in the 1890s. What was one quote that, that summed up righteousness by faith? Ellen White says, it laid the glory of man in the dust. <laughs> okay, and that was not to put man down. It was to put man in this proper place where God could advantage him. Because we did start from the dust, didn't we? It's okay to be laid in the dust because then we realize that God is able to make something out of dust. All right? So think now in terms of, of this, whose seed was in itself, and look at it in terms of spiritual truths. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to do his good pleasure. So who works in us? God. And then... They, God says of Israel in the rebellious state, they shall not enter my rest, though the works were finished from the foundation of the world. What was finished from the foundation of the world? The rest, the completeness in God. It was finished from the foundation. It's always been in God. Christ brought it back to us. He brought that completion back because he became complete again in humanity. He brought completion back to humanity by what he did, by uniting divine nature with human nature and perfecting uh, that expression in humanity. Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So there we have the same idea of the seed in itself. Now, there's two seeds in the Bible in the spiritual realm. I'll skip that one because it, it talks about the fact that only God can, make, can bring perfection out in us. We cannot make ourselves perfect. We only step into God's perfection 
by letting him work in us, okay? And that's in Christ through the blood, through the atonement now because of the fall. Um, I better move along here. Uh, talked about evolution, but I've already touched on that. This lecture is about seed, uh, but the laws governing the physical seed also govern the spiritual seeds. What we learn in the physical seed will mirror the spiritual truth of where righteousness and evil come from. Now, there are only two spiritual seeds in Scripture. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed, which is Satan's expression in humanity, and her seed, which is Christ's expression in humanity. Now, how do I know that? Quickly, Galatians 3.16, now to Abraham and his seed where the promise is made, but look what Paul says. And he said, which is God, God said not unto seeds, plural, which we would think of as, well, the many children of Eve. No, to the one seed, which is Christ. So there's only two expressions. People say, oh, it's my human nature to do wrong. You know, it's not exactly accurate. Christ took human nature and did no wrong in it. Because when it is yoked with divine nature, the proper expression takes place, even when it's fallen. Because we're told he took fallen nature, likeness of sinful flesh. So, so the beauty of it is that divine nature is all-sufficient. And the beauty of it is, is that in this illustration of the seed, we see there's only two seeds. There's the seed of yoking with evil and the seed of yoking with good. That's Christ. Christ is the creator and create new life in us. And we're going to see this in the garden. Like I said, you cannot make a seed germinate. You just know that God has sort of preloaded it to do that. But at the same time, you're still dependent on God to even help that seed not die when it does germinate. Jesus said, I'm the true vine. And uh, in verse 3, he says, you are already clean. But the word clean is a little bit of a mistranslation in King James. It actually means clean pruned or pruned clean. It relates to verse 2 where he says, every branch that, that bears fruit, he prunes. And in verse 3, he says, you are already pruned clean. Proper translation, I am the vine. So remember that. Um, there's an Ellen White quote, there is life in the seed, there is power in the soil, but unless infinite power is exercised day and night, the seed will yield no return. The showers of rain must refresh the thirsty fields. The sun must impart warmth. It goes on to say, and so basically what we're seeing here is a spiritual principle which relates to the heirloom seed and the natural seed is that unless we respect the laws of God, we're not going to see the full benefit, Okay. There is a law of God in the operation of seeds and how they're used, and we're going to touch on that now. So I got through the devotional part. It's a little longer than the regular part, but I think that's okay, right? <laughs> because it gives, it gives the real purpose for what, what this is about. I'm not making excuse for the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. So we live in a, in a world infatuated with the creature contribution, what the creature can do. And I won't get into that. I'm running out of time. How does this relate to the seed? Let's see. We'll enter into the study of the seed. In the industrialized world, it hides the truths behind human achievements and alterations. It hides God's, God's truth behind human achievement. And in modern agriculture, the same thing happens. The two targets of evolutionary pantheism are education and agriculture, the two, right? You'll notice that, and they're very closely related. So the questions we want to answer then on the practical level is, what is an heirloom seed? What is an open-pollinated seed? What is a hybrid seed? What is GMO seed? 
And keep in mind, I'm not condemning hybrid seeds. Uh, I'm definitely not for GMO seed. But I'll explain the, the essential need to grow and preserve heirloom and open-pollinated seeds. Because if we only saved hybrid seeds, we would run into an extinction eventually of seed, believe it or not. An extinction of most of the, what they call the biodiversity that God placed in the seed. Um, okay? And how that links to last day events and seed independence. So in Wikipedia, you can go there and you can look up heirloom plant variety. And uh, basically, when you're talking about heirlooms, it's a little bit debated exactly what an heirloom is, but usually it's, it's a plant that was grown in a certain area or in an ethnic culture, um, and it developed certain traits over time. God gave natural seed the ability to adapt to its surroundings. Now, that's not evolution. That is love. That is God's uh, Steps of Christ talks about the wonderful plan of adaptation that God in his mercy has placed in the animals and the plants so that they don't go extinct, right? So it's already pre-thought of before the fall, and that's the amazing thing about God. And so the heirloom plant, they were grown in ethnic areas. They, they, they open-pollinated, which means basically, in some cases, plants self-pollinate, right? So, so there are several plants of the same variety. They may pollinate each other, or one plant may pollinate itself. Tomatoes are self-pollinators, uh, if, you, if you grow them in a greenhouse, you can take a little brush and you can uh, just, or feather and touch them or even use your fingers and shake the, the, the flowers and the, and the male pollen falls and the female part and all of that and uh, you, you get tomatoes. But if there's no wind in a greenhouse, your, your little flowers will fall off because they just don't get to pollinate and they lose productivity. Um, so the heirloom plant is the reason, you know, heirloom has to do with something handed down and basically generation after generation will grow something in an area. It'll adapt to that area. It becomes especially good for growing in that area. That's what people don't realize with heirloom plants. They're so difficult. Well, if you grew it for long enough, it would adapt to your area. And if you developed it, and you can, there's wisdom God can give us in how to help it adapt, okay? Um, before the industrialization of agriculture, a much wider variety of plant foods were grown for human consumption. During the 19th and 20th centuries, the diversity was huge. Old nursery categories were filled with plums, peaches, pears, apples, numerous varieties and vegetables as well. In modern agriculture, in the industrialized world, most food crops are now grown in large monocultural plots in order to maximize consistency Few varieties, varieties of each crop are grown. These varieties are often selected for their productivity. Now listen, their ability to withstand mechanical picking and cross-country shipping and their tolerance to drought, frost, and being dumped on with lots of pesticides. Now, does that have your interest in view there? I mean, is it about your health? No, it's about the market, and as Bob was saying, it's about productivity, money, and it's, not, it's very short-sighted. It's not service-oriented, uh, caring for humanity. It's basically market-oriented. It's making money, right? And it's, it's basically selfish. So a lot of the plants that are selected from hybrid breeding, now what you do with a hybrid, as opposed to a, a natural, is that you take um, two parents, and you continually breed those parents, inbreed them, breed them with themselves uh, or with similar, you know, similar characteristics to, to eliminate 
a lot of other things and just get this one trait to develop. So it actually involves inbreeding, which as you know, inbreeding is not according to God's plan in long-term situations. Now, small amounts of it, yeah, nature can withstand it. But long-term inbreeding, what's the problem with long-term inbreeding in plants and, and animate creatures? Anybody know? Huh? Mutation. Another problem is loss of gene pool, loss of biodiversity. You're, you're narrowing down the genetic information because most of the time when things change, they're losing information, not gaining. It's because of loss of other dominant genetics that new expressions take place in a lot of cases, recessive genes and things like that. And so, so they, when, they, when they're doing hybrids, if they over-hybridize, they're actually losing a lot of the information that could be beneficial for adaptation and other things. In the short run, it looks great because you're selecting out certain traits that are desirable. And then you, put the, you do it in two parents, and then you put them together, and you can combine them, and you can get um, a hybrid, which is the, the first generation, uh, which has those two traits. So let's say I want drought tolerance and I want a certain color or I want shipping durability. And so I put these two plants together and I might get both of them to express. And there's a science to it. It's not that easy. Um, and so like in fields of corn, I go two types of corn. I break all the male tassels off one so that it only gets the pollen from the other and things like that. Long-term, and Wikipedia admits this, long-term, it's deleterious. That means it's, it's not helpful to the gene pool. It actually doesn't lead to health of the plants. Short-term, it might increase production because it might give us desirable traits by throwing out all sorts of traits we don't even know what they do. It just simplifies. It dumbs it down, all right? So hybrids are not bad in and of themselves, but, but consistent hybridization and only hybridizing has caused the loss of lots of heirloom varieties. They estimated, uh, go on quickly here, that in Britain alone, since the 1970s, about 2,000 varieties of, of heirlooms were lost, or of open-pollinated seeds were lost. Now, there's another troubling thing. I have a friend who is, I was talking to, who's actually a former student that I'd had at Southern when I taught there. I taught art education there, and he was an education major. And he's a farmer now at uh, Blue Mountain. Is he here? Probably not. Yeah, okay. Can you tell us? Well, I'll, I'll tell it because the, the recording won't. He, he mentioned to me that they do grow some heirlooms. And most, you know, most farmers are going to grow some hybrids because of the, the consistency and some, some heirlooms. And the heirlooms are becoming more popular now because of their higher nutritional content. But the, the animals, he said, will tend to take the bites out of the heirlooms and avoid the hybrids. They've done the same experiment with GMO and they put like corn cobs and squirrel, the squirrel would come and there's a corn cob that's a natural corn cob and a, and a genetically modified by human means, not by natural means. Hybrids are by natural means to a certain extent. GMO is not. And, and, and the, the squirrel wouldn't eat the GMO corn. Animals seem to be equipped by the creator with a sense, uh, somehow they sense nutrients in the food. And they will tend to favor certain foods, even when they're sick, and I think it was Huxley, wasn't it, who discovered that with cancer treatment or whatever, that the horse that was sick ate a certain type of clover and certain types of herbs more than the other horses and healed itself. And some of this is a mystery to us. It may be directed by the Holy Spirit. We don't know with his mercy with animals and creatures, but, but we know that there's healing properties in the plants. But the more we meddle with the plants, the more we tend to lose you know, and a lot of it comes from the evolutionary worldview that we're making things better by intervening heavily with nature. 
when in fact, because of what we don't know, when we intervene heavily with nature and disrespect the laws that God might have placed there, we're actually destroying a lot of things we don't even see, you know. And long term, we find out, right, like with our cancer rate now, we're seeing a lot of rising rates of cancer and child sickness with, um, we believe it's related to to the interference in the food with the pesticides and the the GMO and different things like that. There's there's whole... um, whole barns full of animals that have been fed on GMO food and just like being sickly. And then they, I know an expert, Jeffrey Smith, he said he went in, he said, look, try feeding your animals on grains that are not GMO generated. Guess what? The minute he started feeding them on the normal grains, the animals perked up. They started, they had life, they had energy, they weren't sickly anymore. They were, you know, more prolific. And so, the, the problem is that the huge corporations are blocking this. It's detriment to them. It's, it's like, you know, it's really serious because now they've invested all this time and money and it's a huge corporation involved in all this. It's a, it's a huge industry. The politicians are tied up in it and there's funding going back and forth and all of a sudden, oops, the evolutionary view of meddling with nature and making what we want out of it is showing that it's wrong. It's showing that it's violating laws that a creator has set in place. So, you know, um, on GMO, by the way, it's where they actually go in unnaturally and splice into the gene system and they put in genes that sometimes are not even from plants, you know. Uh, And so they're really messing with the DNA in GMO. Now, hybridization is not that. It is actually using natural methods of pollination, but it's just being much more selective than is naturally occurring, you know. And selection isn't necessarily bad. It's just that when you only do selection, 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 and you only use uh, plants, hybrids that are in transition phase, they haven't stabilized. You, are you aware that if you, if you buy a hybrid seed and you plant it um, the next year, you're aware that it doesn't produce the consistency that you've already seen the first year. It has something, it, it's not consistent anymore. So what's the other big problem with hybrids? then, that you might see in an end-time scenario? Huh? Sorry, I can't hear that, was it? Yeah, you, if you do save seed, you don't know what you're getting. And that's very detrimental to income, isn't it? If you, if you, know, you want a good income from your farming. Uh, the other problem, <clears throat> did somebody else have something to say? There's other problems too with, with only using hybrids. And that is, if... The, well, let me show you this quote, and that'll explain it better. How are we doing on time? I, I better wrap up here pretty quickly because I want to allow for some time of question. But listen to this statement by the servant of the Lord. Again and again, the Lord has instructed that our people are to take their families away from the cities into the country. Now, this is written in 1904, and these messages developed over time, okay? Where they can raise their own provisions, for in the future, the problem of buying and selling will be very serious, a very serious one. Now, how many people here have produced their own F1 hybrids every year? Anybody? Has anybody produced an F1 hybrid? Oh, nobody. You know why? It's much easier to produce an heirloom seed than an F1 hybrid. Now, people tell me, but it's really hard to grow hybrids. Well, if you take into account that you know, real growing involves saving your own seed and growing it out. It's actually easier to grow hybrids in the long term because F1 hybrids are produced where? A lot of times they're produced in highly technological areas where you have to have a big corporation and 
by the way, you know, you have to skip a year. So, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty uh, tricky. And so we're, de we're dependent on corporate supply for our seeds. Now, how does that relate to this quote? We become consumer gardeners and consumer farmers rather than self-sufficient gardeners and self-sufficient farmers. So I'm not against hybrids, but if you only grow hybrids, you're really, it's not showing faith in what the servant of the Lord has said, that the time will come when you will not be able to buy or sell not only food, but your seed. Unless you comply with the system, you're not allowed to have seed. And what are you going to do? Well, if you have your own seed, which God has placed in the plant itself, you've, you've abided by God's wisdom and you've been given that independence, that seed independence. This is happening all over the world. Uh, small farmers who have no money but, but subsist by agriculture uh, have lost their livelihood by buying into corporate agriculture and now they don't have the money that's exacted from them to be able to buy the seed or buy the chemicals or whatever. So it's, it's a brilliant way of eliminating small farmers and selecting out because they don't want a lot of farmers. They want a few farmers that are producer farmers. They're consumer farmers, sorry, that are dependent on the system. And then, of course, politicians realize this is centralization. It gives politicians more power. It gives government more power. And, you know, in their worldview, you can understand it's more successful. It helps you control a country. So our food is really closely linked to our independence. Do you see that? And so heirlooms and open-pollinated... What's the difference between heirloom and open-pollinated? Basically, an heirloom is generally open-pollinated. What that means is that um, they, they, you don't have to use special selective means there uh, in using two different parents, but basically the plant... It needs a certain amount of isolation, but it can reproduce itself from its own pollen or from uh, a, a plant of a like type. <clears throat> and, and so heirlooms are a special type of open pollinated. Open pollinated is what I'm talking about there. And heirlooms are those that have been handed down. And usually they say, you know, certain amount of time, certain amount of stability shown. Some open pollinated are still in development. So if you take a hybrid an F1 hybrid, and you continue to grow it out, you can eventually stabilize it and allow it to retain some of that genetic information and, and become an heirloom or become an open pollinated. The problem is we only generally plant F1 hybrids. That means the first year it's in transition. It's not stable. And so it's not really useful beyond that first year. Okay. So, so what it relates to is, do we really believe that God wants us to be independent? Do we really believe the warning messages that not only are we to grow our own food, but we need to know how to be able to have the seed for our own food, right? And that wasn't an issue in Ellen White's day because they only really used heirloom seeds, at least the majority, right? And so, um, so it's become a problem in our time that we need to be able to adapt to, we need to be able to figure out. Okay, uh, any questions at this point? We have a few minutes for questions. Well, I would say in that case, you would need to look at the foods you need to survive that you can produce enough to survive off, you know, and if, if you're looking at it from an end time scenario. And, uh, and, you know, it's possible that we'll be able to share seeds in the end time. So it's not like everybody has to grow everything themselves. But uh, you just don't want to become totally dependent on an outside source. But that would depend on, on what grows in your area, what successfully grows. Like in Ireland, potatoes grow really well. And they're vegetative heirlooms. I mean, you can reproduce them from themselves 
from the tubers. It's sort of a natural preservation there. Uh, and fruit trees, they're, so they're heirloom fruit trees, but they're not by seed, they're by cultivar, by cuttings and reproducing. So you'd have to look at what was really important to your survival and save those ones. So each farmer, each gardener, that would be different depending on what area they're in. Now, I didn't talk about seed saving because I didn't really feel like I had time to get into that. But there's a book called Seed to Seed, and you can buy it over there by Suzanne Ashworth. We actually grew one of her gourds. Uh, my brother here, I meant to include him in the talk, um, Kent, right? Kent uh, works at Oklahoma Academy. We farmed there, and he took over. We were growing some heirlooms, and they're developing new open-pollinated seed-stabilized varieties all the time. And he, he actually harvested some and this man did a great job the seed company said wow that farmer did a great job he cleaned was that really really difficult to clean all that seed and it was terribly hard to grow right because <laughs> it's an heirloom it was an heirloom no. it was actually a purple ochre it was very easy to grow yeah. but but you do have to figure out what heirlooms work in your area yeah. right and not to get off the subject but i just no, oklahoma yeah oklahoma uh, for seed you know seeds are tiny Somebody has a question here. Yes. Save your potatoes? Mainly store them when you, when you dig them up. Store them in, in a, you know, basements are good, but you don't want them too, too moist, I guess, right? You, we served our potatoes. Yeah, cellar. Yeah, and I can't, I can't really get into all the details of how to save every different type, but there is a book called Seed to Seed, and there's lots of resources online. But what I'm trying to tell you is, it is, it is more work, but God's way is always more work than the world's way in the short run and less work in the long run. In the long run, we're, we're going to have a lot more work if we don't know how to propagate food and we have to go begging for it or we have to find some other way to get it. So what seems more work in the beginning is not always the worst thing. We need it, actually. We need the toil. I'm trying to think of anything else I haven't touched on. Any other questions? Yes. Uh, so the question is, you know, how long are most seeds viable for and is there a way to extend that? And the other questions, uh, I think we dealt with, your question was again, the lady back here? Storing. Yeah, storing potatoes. And like I said, I can't really get in. We don't have enough time to get into all of this, but there, I'm telling you, there's great resources. If you, www.rareseeds.com, um, go there and ask, they will answer your questions on seed storage because it's different for different plants. And the, the period of time is different for different varieties and different plants. And the methods differ also. But in most cases, a dry, cool environment with a sealed packet is, is the way that you do that. Some will last, you know, 10 years. Some will last only two years, depending on uh, the way God has designed them. And usually they're the sort of seeds you want to grow all the time if they only last a short time. And there are other seeds that, you know, you can store for a long time. And I, we found a melon in a cave that's an ancient watermelon that has a, it's a gourd-shaped melon. And I did a video on that for Baker Creek. And we don't know how old that thing is. It might be 80 years, but it was stored in a cave in dry conditions. Definitely, it was in an ancient Anasazi-style pot. Now, they're, they're speculating that's 800 years old. But, you know, I mean, if you're a Native American back in the early 1900s and you didn't have a lot of plastic wear, you would hold on to pots from generation to generation. So it could have been actually much more recent. Any other questions? Uh, yes. I just wanted to answer Sure. That's my wife, by the way. She always knows better than me. <laughs> and by the way, your, your, your nutrient, and so my wife is saying a double Ziploc and 
freezer. Uh, your nutrient value, your nutrient value in the heirlooms because of the greater biodiversity is usually higher. And there's a market now, especially in the cities, from those who are educated on the subject, they want the heirlooms because they're learning this. And the varieties of colors that also come in heirlooms. We were trying to sell okra in, in Oklahoma. At first, they wouldn't buy it because it wasn't green. We had a purple okra. Now, purple okra is less slimy than the green okra. And as soon as they discover that, the traditions started to fall away. We tried to sell tomatoes of different colors. They would only buy red tomatoes, you know. And so a process of education has to take place. Now, if I went to California and I was at Santa Rosa, they love variety because they're used to, they're educated on that, you know, and that's where the sort of a food movement is happening. Yes. Okay. So humidity plus temperature must equal 100. That's a law with saving seeds. They can't hear you on here, so I'm repeating. Yeah. So if you're a market gardener, you may want to grow some hybrids because, you know, that's just the way the market is. But do keep some heirlooms alive and also introduce them to people. And I think that's a good balance. Yeah. Now, I don't work there anymore, but I do contract work for them. But yes, they keep them in a big, big freezers. Yes. And they dry them in a special way. Yeah. Yeah. So shrink wrapping. Monica, shrink wrapping. I think that would be good, wouldn't it? Because it's... Yeah. Yeah. We are over time, so if you need to leave or attend something else, feel free. It's not, I will not be offended at all. I mean, we're, not, we're supposed to end, but if anybody has any other questions, we can go on. Yeah. There's many of them all around the world now. There's a movement, there's a movement against the corporate takeover of seed, which is trying to limit seed to corporations and also eliminate variety. Because for the market system that we have, they don't like too much variety. It's competition for their system. Uh, but it's a terrible thing in the long run to get rid of the variety. So yes, there's seed banks in the Netherlands, there's seed banks in Sweden, there's seed banks in everywhere. And still we're losing heirlooms every day. We're losing open pollinated varieties still because they're not in the major market system. Yeah, yeah. And I think that as we survive in the end times, it, w it will need to be a community thing because not everybody can save everything. So we need to be able to share. There'll be barter going on for a period of time, I think, in the time of trouble, you know, that we will have. So, yes. Any other questions or comments or yes? Oh, yeah. If you, if you see one or two rotting, get them out of there. You should check on them beforehand and not let them get that far. Yeah. Yeah, there's poisonous gases and methane is probably one, but yeah. Okay. And I'm, I'm here, if anybody else has questions they want to ask afterwards, I'll hang around for a little bit. So. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.